Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. I am here with my fearless co-host, Gerard Robinson. Gerard, we're coming off an awesome interview last week with Jason Riley. Um, I I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was amazing. I missed out on some parts of the interview, although I was with you for the front of the show, and I was like really regretting it. But we're so lucky week after week to have such smart, like cool people on our show, um, like yourself, my friend Gerard. How how are you doing this week? I'm doing well, but I must say that the that management said that last week's interview was probably the best that we've had since the show was created. And not because you weren't there, not because you weren't there. It's just that I wanted to make sure that uh, you you knew that I I had your back. But the word is out there. I know. And you want to make sure that our listeners are, of course, they listen. So they know it was pretty damn good. <laughs> but uh, well, can I say that. Yes, I do say that. Um, well, I'm happy to be back with you this week, Jordan. We've got another great yes. guest this week, another author. You know, uh, Pioneer just keeps booking these amazing people. Um, but we have some stories of the week, very learning curve, education focused. So mine, Gerard, is coming from NPR this week, um, Anya Kamenetz. And we should have her on sometime. What do you think? She's been doing really great reporting on schools during the pandemic. Yep. Uh, but the title is Lessons from Europe, Where Cases Are Rising, But Schools Are Open. Um, and, you know, I've got to tell you, Gerard, in so many um, in so many ways, what's going on in a lot of places, I mean, this article saying France, the UK, Germany, and Italy appear to be following the emerging evidence that schools have not been major centers of transmission for the virus, especially for young children. Um, it's it's pretty astounding to me how in so many places the U.S. has just, we've gone counter to what others are doing. And boy, we still have continue to have more coronavirus cases than anybody Um And I'll add that I was speaking with a friend of mine who has actually moved to Germany during the pandemic. Um, She Mm -hmm. is dual citizenship. So she moved to Germany during the pandemic. And one of the reasons she moved to Germany was because she wanted her children in face-to-face school. Um, And she said that although almost everything else is pretty well locked down over there, that the kids are still in school. And fortunately, everybody's been safe, that they're adhering to strict protocols and making it work. Now, as I don't have to tell you, we know that a lot of folks who can afford private schools are in private schools for this reason, because they are open. And, um, you know, and I think that there's good evidence that remote learning's gotten a lot better, but boy, it sure isn't the same. So we'll see where the new year takes us, but um, hopefully we'll get through this and we'll get to a place where we realize that kids do need to be back in school, um, as scary as it can be for parents, for teachers, for, for everybody, but that there are ways it seems, it seems to do it safely. Cara, that was a really good point. And you know who's going to have to deal with a lot of this in 2021 will be the next Secretary of Education. So my article is from Inside Higher Ed, November 11th, 2020. The author is Carrie Marakami, and it's called The Speculation Over Biden's Education Pick. And there are a number of names in here. Uh, Some of them you may be familiar with, and some may be New to some of our readers, I mean, listeners, but, you know, one person whose name is floating is the former Miami-Dade College president, Eduardo Padron. He is really good. Uh, I knew him when I was in Florida, and uh, he'd be someone to look at, particularly bridging the gap between 
four-year institutions and a handoff from high school since he uh, was president of one of the largest community colleges uh, in the country. They've also mentioned uh, two people, Randy Weingarten, president of AFT, and Lily Garcia, pre uh, president of, or say former president of NEA. And that, of course, has gotten a lot of uh, back and forth between people on the left and right. We've also mentioned a possible lawmaker uh, from the House of Representatives, uh, Representative Adams, who is from North Carolina, a former educator. And she's also someone who's been a very big supporter of HBCUs. And so her name uh, has come up as uh, someone to look at as well as have exiting presidents for, from HBCUs. So there are a lot of names being floated. One of the things I enjoy about, um, let's just say, post-election day conversations about who's going to be the next secretary is that you find names of people you hadn't thought about, including some names coming from Democrats for Education Reform, who would like to see a superintendent, whether it's uh, Sonia in Baltimore or whether it's Janice in Chicago Right. or whether it's William in Philadelphia. So it is an interesting time, and I'm glad to see the names floating around, and, uh, you know, you may know in the next week or so. Yeah, we, we will know sooner rather than later, and I would just, you know, I'm sure that uh, President-elect Biden is listening to the learning curve, and I just want to say, you know, he promised to bring us together, and so um, uh, putting a, a union head in the position is something that will um, clearly alienate a lot of people. Uh, there'll be people that'll be very happy about it, but he promised to put an educator in the position. And um, there are a lot of great candidates with deep experience in schools. Some of those names that you mentioned that don't bring the kind of sort of controversial um, view of what education needs to be um, to the table. Um, and I, I'm taking a little hope. I, I hope I am saying the same thing a week or two weeks from now. The fact that um, President-elect Biden, you know, he uh, supported Obama-era education reforms, many of which were uh, choice-friendly, uh, really, really thoughtful, I think, in terms of, you know, uh, expanding high-performing charter schools, among other things. And so I hope that we can keep um, some of the names you mentioned in mind, and I hope I hope that they really are thinking about how we can bring folks together because the, there there's some schisms in ed reform too that we need to be thinking about every single kid, every single kid. And coming up right after this, listeners, we're going to be speaking with Professor um, Wayne Franklin. He is an expert on an author that. Um, if you haven't read him, the name will be familiar. James Fenimore Cooper. Really, um, it's going to be an exciting literary conversation at this really important time, because this month, Gerard, I don't know if you realize this, but this is Native American Heritage Month. So a really good way, I think, for us to, um, to highlight that for our listeners. So we'll be back in just a minute. And Learning Curve listeners, today we have with us Wayne Franklin, professor of English at the University of Connecticut. He's authored the two-volume definitive biography, James Fenimore Cooper, The Early Years, and James Fenimore Cooper, The Later Years, one in 2007, the other in 2017, and both from Yale University Press. Each volume was selected as an outstanding academic title by Choice Magazine, while the first volume won an award from the Association of University Presses. He's also authored books on early American travel writing, 
Discoverers, Explorers, and Settlers, written in 1979, The Frontier Fiction of Cooper, The New World of James Fenimore Cooper, 1982, and Mapping American Culture, 1992, the last co-edited with Michael Steiner. He founded the University of Iowa's Press American Land and Life series in 1990, eventually editing some 30 books in it, and for 20 years was among the editors of the Norton Anthology of American Literature, which I have sitting right in front of me on my desk, actually. Professor Franklin taught at the University of Iowa, where he was one of the founding faculty members in Iowa's American Native Native Studies program, and he served as Davis Distinguished Professor of American Literature at Northeastern University. Franklin came to UConn in 2005 to serve as director of its American Studies program, and in 2009 was chosen head of the UConn English Department. He earned a BA in English from Union College and his MA and PhD in English from the University of Pittsburgh. Professor Franklin, thank you so much for being with us on The Learning Curve today. Uh, Happy to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you. We have the pleasure of talking with so many great um, authors and thinkers on this show. Um, and But we have not yet talked about James Fenimore Cooper. This is just um, something that I think most of us remember from high school days. I know I've got a child who's um, uh, thinking about reading Last of the Mohicans, which we have on our shelf right now. So we're excited to talk to you. Um, Cooper is regarded as as America's first major novelist, and he authored the classic Last of the Mohicans, as I just mentioned, as well as pioneering key forms of fiction, including the frontier adventure story, the sea tale, and historical romances. So here on The Learning Curve, we we think about kids. We think about K-12 school children quite a bit. Why do you think it's so important for citizens, including K-12 school children, and even the university students that you teach today, to better appreciate Cooper, while also learning about American democracy. Sure. So I think novels and short stories are the stories we choose to tell about ourselves as a people, a culture. They can be family stories. They can be local or regional stories. But they can also have a kind of national cultural ambition. Uh, And the sorts of stories we we tell and read uh, reflect who we think we are or ought to be. Uh, often a kind of tension between those two. And Cooper's important because back at the beginning of American literature, uh, around the year 1820, he he pioneered, uh, pun intended, a, a number of uh, lasting literary story types. Uh, the spy novel, he wrote the first espionage novel ever, anywhere, called The Spy. He, he invented the frontier story. Um, he he brought the historical romance to American shores, very popular then under Walter Scott's um, fame. Uh, and, and it wasn't just that he did a lot of things that were ambitious and effective. It was that he was doing things that nobody else was doing. So he was born in 1789, the same year that the Constitution went into effect, and that was not a point lost on him. Um, from 1770, before the revolution, to 1820, the year Cooper published his first novel, Americans had written and published only about 100 novels. It's about two a year. So mostly Americans were consuming British fiction. And there was a feeling, particularly after the Second War with Britain, that that was not necessarily the best kind of storytelling to, to use in trying to rear up a Republican-Democratic population. 
Um, so uh, the sorts of stories people were reading didn't reflect American institutions. Now, Cooper, who'd been in the Navy, who'd been raised on the frontier in New York, knew a lot of different areas of American experience, and he, he mined those in, in inventing those story types. And so in, in the 1820s, from 1820 to 1830, his first decade as a writer, another hundred novels were published by Americans. So that's an amazing increase, still not a lot. But he wrote 10 of them, fully 10% of American fiction in that period. And six of those were bestsellers, including Last of Mohicans, his most famous book. So he set in motion, or he set in place, a number of uh, powerful stories that reflected who Americans had been, who they might become, um, who they were at his moment, and who they still are, who we still are in some ways today. The Western is the most famous part of his legacy. Um, and whether it be, you know, Hopalong Cassidy, which I watched re regularly growing up on <laughs> television, or No Country for Old Men. Yeah, um, great it, film. It, it, this is a, a powerful invention, and it has to do with our relation with the land, our relation with the Native Americans, and each other. And and what a what a good social organization might be because these stories are almost always about founding new societies or new towns or villages or states. Those are some of the reasons why he, he matters and why we might read him and reflect on who we have been as a people, who we still are, who we might become. I wonder, Professor, when, when your students come to you <laughs> at UConn, um, maybe some of them have read Cooper in high school, but could you comment on how prepared they are to understand his influence on on American literature um, and the role that he played, for example, in as you just mentioned, in in the American novel? Sure. So most most students, even at college level, um, don't come with a finely honed and finely developed historical sense. They're very much, as we all are, uh, creatures of their own moment. So it's an acquired taste to read, say, Shakespeare or Geoffrey Chaucer or James Fenimore Cooper. They write in a language that's accessible if we work hard at it, but they, they write in ways that uh, we wouldn't necessarily ourselves. So while Cooper's had this influence on forms that we still consume and reflect on, the spy novel, uh, for instance, the Western two I've mm -hmm. mentioned, but also the sea story, which he basically invented. Um, uh, they, his, his, his reading him, understanding and responding to his work takes some labor on our part. And I, I always say, you know, um, Shakespeare is great. He's hard to understand. You can't understand your culture without understanding him. And he's dead, so he's not going to explain himself to us any more than he <laughs> did writing those plays. So we, we're alive. And we, we can make that bridge to him. I think the same is true with any person from the past. Um, so what I would do as a teacher is try to find a, a passage in a book by Cooper um, that I think students might respond to, that might speak to some of their concerns, concerns about identity, concerns about doubt, um, you know, fear, where, where we find ourselves, where we're going. Um, and from there, build out into the larger uh, patterns of Cooper's fiction or anybody's work, literary work. 
And I, yeah. and I would say, I remember the, fir- the first novel of Cooper's I read was in college. He had fallen out of favor. And listen, I grew up in upstate New York, Cooper country. My, my mother's family came from literally Otsego County where Cooper's family had, a, had built Cooperstown. Um, but it wasn't until I went to college and I read The Pioneers, which is Cooper's fictional account of the settlement of, of Cooperstown um, and the book that introduces Natty Bumpo. And I was astonished by the richness and particularly by the environmental acuity of that book. He's very much interested in how wasteful we are being, even in the 1820s, with the abundance of American, the American environment. Um, and so that's a consistent theme in his work that I think students today can respond to. And I teach environmental studies and other things, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that people get that today. Yeah, uh, text to life connections there, right? <laughs> text to science connections. Yeah. That's, so, so that's it. I... Well, I was going to say you work between the then and the now. And fortunately, I'm, I'm in the now, and I know <laughs> something about the then. So I try to build those bridges and, and help and encourage students across them. Yeah. Uh, well, an amazing advice for, for teachers everywhere. Um, you mentioned Natty Bumpo, which is a name yeah. that, of course, I think I think most recognize as, you know, a really important character in American literature, even if they can't quite, if some adults can't quite place it right, right away. Um, so sure. scholars have said that Natty was based on Daniel Boone, um, it, this trailblazing, self-reliant character. Can you talk a little bit more about Natty Bumpo? And, and uh, do you think, you know, is he one of our country's most, this mythical nab, national symbol just hiding in plain sight? You know, I, th- I think he is. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, and and part of the curiosity of Natty is that Cooper kind of stumbled on him. I'll explain what I mean. In, in the book that he published just before the pioneers, The Spy, he had made um, a central character, uh, an ordinary peddler, not very well educated, a kind of a rambling figure who wanders around um, getting goods from British-held New York and selling them to Americans who are exiled from the city of New York during the Revolution. And, and Harvey Brooks, this peddler, uh, to all appearances, is a self-centered, money-grubbing, um, maybe neutral in the war, maybe actually is thought by some to be a spy of the British, who's, you know, on his weekly trips down to the New York City, is bringing uh, um, information from Westchester County. Turns out that he's this selfless patriot who's in the employ of George Washington. And Cooper, I think, stumbled on something very important, which is the, the notion of a democratic hero. The ordinary person, not um, well educated particularly, not of high station, um, not necessarily in the esteem of his immediate circle, but somebody who has a kind of rock solid faith in democracy. Um, and and is willing to sacrifice himself for it. And, and it turns out Cooper based this figure of Harvey Birch on a real spy who had been in the service of John Jay. And John Jay told Cooper stories about this, this person, and Cooper transformed those stories into this novel about espionage, yes, but also about American patriotism. The next year, when and, and actually he'd started working on the pioneers while he was still working on the spy, but the next year when he chose to write a story about his family's frontier experiences in the pioneers. He, he created a figure whom I think he thought of as a kind of comic, um, 
backwoods type. But in the course of writing the story, because he gave Natty Bumpo, this backwoods type, uh, a kind of high idealism and, and mm-hmm. kind of concern for nature, um, Natty emerges as a, a heroic figure. So he, he was comic, he was maybe comic relief, um, but he becomes a hero. And uh, two years later, uh, Cooper starts writing the second Natty Bumpo story, the most famous one, Last of the Mohicans, when Natty's 35 or so years younger and is a heroic figure who uh, protects the daughters of a British uh, officer who's stationed at Fort William Henry on Lake George um, and, and generally stands up for the values of civilization. He does the same in the prairie the next year. And then for 13 years, he dies at the end of the prairie in the middle of Nebraska in the time when Lewis and Clark are going to the West Coast. So this is around 1805, the nominal date of this, the story. Uh, and then 13 years later, Cooper returns to Natty Bumpo in the Pathfinder, set on Lake Ontario during the French and Indian War. And the following year, 1841, Natty returns in, in the Deerslayer, an 18-year-old who's never killed a man, hence the title Deerslayer, hmm. which is meant sarcastically by his Indian allies. Um, and in that story, he, he defends human rights. Um, he's up against some racists who are uh, white men scouring the, the frontier, killing and scalping Indians so that they can make scalp bounties on each of the, um, the scalps. I mean, and it's, it's a gross and, and horrible business, and Natty points that out. So does Cooper. The scalp hunters do not come off well in this story. But Natty, uh, when one of the scalp hunters says, you know, the way I view it, there are three races in the world, the white, the black, and the red. The white are at the top. The black can be around the whites because they can learn from them. The reds are just, you might as well forget about them. They're savages, and that's it. Natty says quite clearly in response to this, God made them, made us all alike. And, and the, the scalp hunter pushes back and Natty repeats that and talks about the nobility of, of human rights, which is a new discourse at that time. And, and Cooper is insistent on making Natty not only this capable and exciting frontier figure who can shoot a single bird out of the sky for dinner or um, uh, take down a, a, a native or European foe with real skill, though always with restraint. He never does it to scalp them for money. He does it because uh, he's in a tight spot and he, he therefore has to act that way. So he acts with restraint and, and he embodies these civilized ideals, even in the face of so-called civilized people who don't. So I think that's part of why Natty Bumpo is an important figure. He, he could have been, like many frontiersmen in earlier works, a kind of lout uh, a person living in the woods without any real connection to civilization, but he's not. He's, he embodies both the skill that allows him to survive in the woods and these high ideals, Christian ideals in, in many ways, um, but, but certainly the ideals of the Constitution. Cooper is very much aware of, by, by the time he writes The Deerslayer, of the importance of upholding the Constitution and, and its uh, Bill of Rights. 
So, so it's important to recognize the role that the that the character of Natty Bumpo plays in sort of pushing against, pushing pushing back against some of the horrors of the time. Um, in in you know how how Cooper elevates him in that sense, but it's so this is you know Cooper's writing in around the same time where we have Andrew Jackson and horrible atrocities uh, yes. against Native Americans, right? And so. He portrays this as well. Could you talk a little bit about the way he portrays Native American characters? Um, a couple of I'm, I'm going to try these names. <laughs> they sound okay in my head, but you know, uh, the Mohican chief Chingachgook, his son Uncas, yep. as well as Magua, the the Huron villain. How does how do these characters um, come across perhaps differently than they might have had somebody else been writing? Yeah, so it's a complicated matter to talk about politics at that time, and we should be aware of the complexities of politics at all times. Uh, yes. <laughs> but but in, in, in the case of Cooper, he was a Jacksonian, but he was not just a sort of uh, subservient Jacksonian. Well, sometimes it's said that The Last of the Mohicans is a kind of fiction that authorized Indian removal. I think quite to the contrary. It's a fiction in which Indians and Cora, who is part black, part white, Cora Monroe, both of whom die, you know, Uncas and Cora die, they're in love. They're tragic figures. And and for Cooper to take a, a figure like Uncas, who other writers might have regarded as a mere savage, and, and make him a tragic hero is, is tribute to Cooper's sense of the dignity and equal humanity of people not like himself. Um, and, and that's a a critical point. Uh, he never really supported Indian removal. It, it began to take shape while he was abroad in Europe. Uh, when he came back, I think one of the reasons that he pushed back in the Pathfinder and Deerslayer in 1840 and 41, of course, after Jackson was out of office, was that across the 1830s, his own figure of Natty Bumpo, uh, while much revered in the culture generally, was also being kind of spun off uh, as a loudish Indian hater who any chance he gets this frontiersman in other people's frontier fiction clearly derived from Cooper's own practice. Nobody had made frontier novels before that, that figure at other writers hands uh, was, was not an idealistic Democrat. He was a kind of tool of white empire who would shoot Indians whenever he could. And when Cooper has these two scalp hunters in, Deerslayer, that's his response to those other writers. Um, Robert Montgomery Byrd was one, Charles Fennell Hoffman was another, both of them Whigs, not Jacksonian Democrats, who, who clearly, um, nonetheless, supported a kind of racist um, portrayal of Native Americans, which would lead most people to say, as people said at the time, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Cooper could not disagree more. So why is an interesting point, but was he a more gifted, more moral? I, I think partly, yes, maybe, but it had to do a lot with his experience. He wrote about Cooperstown in the Pioneers, where Chingachgook first appears, for instance, at a time when his own family had collapsed financially, had lost its property in Cooperstown, of all places, and he himself was living in sort of rented quarters in New York City, infested with rats, his, his daughter Susan later recalled, and trying to make money 
as a writer, which was almost a laughable thing. And when he, when he does it with a book like The Pioneers, which, by the way, sold 3,500 copies the first day it was published, that's a whole edition. It's an amazing record at that time when you consider the size of the population of the country. Um, he was sensitive to loss. He was sensitive to what it meant to lose your world through no fault of your own. Um, and I think that personal loss, which, which had been felt very deeply by him, was reflected not only in Natty Bumpo's inability to find a place for himself in the world of Templeton, I guess Cooperstown. Natty has to leave at the end, goes off west. Eventually we'll see him again in the prairie. He's been all the way to the Pacific coast and come back, and he dies on the prairie. But also, more importantly, Chingachgook. So when we first see Chingachgook in that 1823 novel, he's a drunken Indian, literally. And he's made more drunk by the powers that be in Cooperstown, or Templeton, who feed him more liquor. Um, and over the course of the book, he recovers his native dignity, sloughs off Christianity even, and dies with native chants on his lips in a forest fire at the end of the novel. He returns in Last of the Mohicans and is this heroic, fully active, wise um, uh, warrior and guide to Natty. Chingachgook can hear all the sounds in the forest as he and Natty are sitting there. Natty can't hear them all. That's a clear indication of Cooper's sense that Native Amer- this is a Native American domain, and however close Natty may be to Native point of view through his own experience and sympathies, he's still not quite Native to the place. And then Uncas comes in as this fully heroic, young, uh, Homeric warrior who falls in love with Cora and, of course, dies. So I think Cooper, across the 1820s, shows Native Americans as uh, heroic and tragic at the same time. Tragic because they were losing the country. It wasn't that he was prescribing they should. So second, or a further point, just very briefly, is he knew Native communities on the, on the New York uh, border during his youth. Um, there were, uh, the Oneida people were the one Iroquois tribe who sided with the colonists in their war against Britain in, in the revolution. And the Oneidas were 30 miles from Cooperstown. Um, and Cooper's father had close dealings with them. Furthermore, the, the, the Oneidas welcomed groups of natives from um, Long Island, from Connecticut, from Massachusetts, who had no place to stay in their points of departure. And they gave them land and helped them settle in New York. So the Mohicans matter for Cooper in the last of the Mohicans because he knew them. Um, they, they were there in New York because they had been displaced from New England. Um, and he knew up to the end of his life, he had dealings with some of those people. John Conkapot was one, for instance, a Scattercook Indian, as I recall. Um, and they came to visit him in Cooperstown. We owe uh, accounts of this to his daughter, Susan, again. So um, he, he knew Native suffering. He knew Native people individually. Um, and, and he, I think, took it as part of his charge in writing fiction for the American Republic to be as inclusive as possible, to make the portrait not just of Euro-Americans, but African-Americans, Native Americans, 
immigrant peoples, French, German, et cetera, who are coming into the country. So uh, he's not perfect, um, and, and it's possible one can uh, find real faults in him, as one can in Thomas Jefferson. But um, his heart and mind are in the right place, and his art is in the right place. So I think Natty is a kind of white Indian. He is sympathetic to and learns from natives, but the natives themselves are heroic. Now, Magua, of course, is not Chingachgooparankas, but the, the thing about Magua, I think, so Cooper's writing stories with conflict in them. <laughs> there are bad whites and there are bad Indians. Um, and the fights come out of those oppositions. Magua is an interesting case because he's a, a native who's been displaced from his home ground and his tribe and, and has lost the kind of dignity of his own culture and people. Um, and he therefore is as corrupt as we might expect anybody in those circumstances to be. Indeed, like Chingachgook at the beginning of Pioneers, drunk, Christianized, so-called, but uh, really a lost man who recovers his cultural identity and dies with real dignity. So that never happens to Magua, but late in Cooper's career, there are figures like Magua who, in fact, um, show the same kind of uh, recovery that Shingachgook shows in 1823 in The Pioneers. So it's a complicated question, but I, I think, as I say, Cooper's mind and heart and art are in the right place. To follow up on uh, the point you just made as it relates to The Last of the Mohicans and relates to Native Americans in general, here's a quote from the book. Should we distrust a man because his manners are not our manners and that his skin is dark? And this was said by the biracial character Cora Monroe. Are there, I mean, Cooper had a number of diverse figures uh, in his work. What can students learn from his novels about race and gender in the early American Republic, whether it's students you teach, you mentioned that before, but maybe even students who are in high school? Sure. So um, I think the first most important thing to notice about Cooper is that while other people were writing fiction for a largely white, middle and upper class audience in the early U.S., Cooper, who came from uh, a fairly prominent family, though it was in financial distress, wrote about a much broader population. So Chingachgook, Uncas, Magua, and the many other Native Americans of various kinds and origins in his works speak to that. But from the beginning, he also has African-American characters. And the thing that's most interesting to me when I think about what he's doing with the black characters, say in The Spy or The Pioneers, is that um, well, he's not, I think, as adept um, as he is in the case of Native American. Um, he includes African-American characters, whether free or enslaved, who actually embody and speak the language of New York African-Americans in this time when slavery was being slowly um, done away with in the state of New York. So from 1799 to 1827, um, uh, New York is abolishing slavery. Uh, slave owners and, and people, it's a complicated series of laws that enact this, um, and, and people are, are nonetheless urged, if they own uh, slaves, to educate them and free them um, and, and help them succeed in the republic. 
And, and that's happening in certain real ways. Uh, among Cooper's in-laws, for instance, the Delanceys. In 1800, the year after that first act is passed, the Delanceys own 10 slaves. In 1810, they don't own any. There are blacks who are in their household, but they are employed in the household. So clearly the Delanceys, who are close friends of John Jay, um, took to heart this challenge of how we go from a slave-based society to a a society of freedom. And, And Cooper's black characters in the 1820s embody the growing sense of self-worth and articulateness that New York blacks were showing, that, that they were having, they were carving a place for themselves in New York City, on Long Island and the Hudson Valley, where there were large numbers of, of previously enslaved uh, African-Americans. Uh, so in The Spy, uh, Harvey Birch, this guy I've spoken about, who is this uh, pro-crypto uh, Patriot. Everybody thinks he's a money-grubbing tool of the British, but he's actually a patriotic spy who suffered much uh, being the servant of George Washington. He at one point just casually uses the N-word referring to slaves in the South. And and Caesar Thompson, who is a slave in the Wharton household, the Whartons are exiled, prominent, uh, well-to-do New York Manhattanites, let me put it that way, who are living in Westchester. And they have slaves. Uh, but Caesar Thompson speaks up immediately and says, that's not a good word. You shouldn't use that word. And his mistress, one of the warden daughters, says, oh, well, then, you know, hush, hush. And, and Caesar reiterates his point. And, and actually, Harvey Birch changes his tune. He corrects his terminology. So he accepts the criticism. So um, I, I think it's not necessary for Cooper to put that scene in that book. It's not necessary for him to use the N-word. It's not necessary for him to have a, a white patriot use that word. Cooper knows exactly how blacks regard that word then. And he uses it strategically to show both the obliviousness of a good white man and the outrage of an enslaved black who might fear for himself uh, if he didn't have that that moral justification in his own heart. So there's a case where very small-scale Cooper is opening a wedge. He's not just including a black character. He's giving a black character voice, and, and the black character is using voice in a political way. Uh, and Cooper knows exactly what he's doing. This is not incidental. Uh, and he does similar things in later books. He also, and here we have a record of what his views are with regard to slavery. He very, he's torn. He has Southern friends, um, particularly because of his experience in the Navy. He met Southern officers. But over time, he, he comes to the view, even in the 1820s, that slavery is an evil, that it is inconsistent with American principles, that it must be done away with. And uh, the year before his death, at the time of the Missouri Compromise, uh, I'm sorry, of the, the uh, Compromise of 1850, which does away with the Missouri Compromise and opens the territories to kind of competitive fighting of the sort that John Brown engaged in in Kansas to determine the future of individual new states, whether they be slave or free. 
Cooper sees um, that compromise of 1850 as a dire thing for the future of the Constitution. Um, and he says, I think interestingly, he says, well, it's possible to find justifications for slavery in the Bible. God knows. But not, not in the Constitution. All men are created equal. And just in the Declaration of Independence and, and uh, the Bill of Rights should apply to everybody. So uh, he sees it there as an evil. I think he foresees the Civil War based on this um, terrible thing. Um, so there, too, I think, again, he's a man of his times. We all are people of our times. But in that case, perhaps less convincingly than in the case of Native Americans, he includes black figures, and he gives them a real voice. He, he knows what their personal and, and political situations are, and he, and he doesn't overlook that. Um, this is no Uncle Tom. And I, uh, by the way, so I'm not arguing against Harriet Beecher Stowe. I think her work is uh, much more frontally engaged. It's also later, of course, just at the time Cooper's dying, that she comes into her own with Uncle Tom's cabin. But he, he doesn't have just um, sort of mindless black figures or mindless red figures or savages or um, slaves who do the bidding of their masters. They speak up. They have an interior life. They have feelings. They have ideas. And under the Constitution, they should have rights. Absolutely. Would you mind reading a passage from a book of your choice? Sure. Uh, Let me say, I'm going to start with a sentence that opens the last of the Mohicans. And then I'm going to switch to a a passage somewhat uh, farther into the book. Um, the sentence that opens the book, and I think this is one reason why that book has such appeal, it's so thoroughgoingly historical. Uh, it's about the French and Indian War, but it, it layers that historical subject with a sense of the opposition of this tough new environment to the very armies that are fighting. And, and the opening sentence of the book is, it was a feature peculiar to the colonial wars of North America that the toils and dangers of the wilderness or to be encountered before the adverse hosts could meet. So it's, it's enough that somebody's trying to kill you and steal your, your land, as the French or the English might think they were trying to do to each other. Uh, in order to even grapple with your foes, unlike in the open plains of Europe, you have to fight the wilderness, you have to fight the forests. And it's that combination of historical sense and and uh, sensitivity to the environment that I think makes Cooper great. Uh, the passage I'd like to call attention to is though, is his description of the falls of the Hudson at Glens Falls, New York. Uh, he'd seen this for the first time a few years, uh, a year and a half or so before he began last, and he can send it to a critical scene in the, the novel. And he has Natty, and this speaks to Natty's inner life too, his poetry. Um, they're in the dark. He's with Cora and Alice and Duncan Hayward on Chingachgook, and they're in the middle of this cavern, in the dark cavern, in the dark night, in the middle of the river, and they can hear the river tumbling over the falls near them. Um, and, and that explains, uh, ah, there are falls on two sides of us, and the river above and below. If you had daylight, it would be worth the trouble to step on the height of this rock and look at the perversity of the water. It falls by no rule at all. Sometimes it leaps, Sometimes it tumbles, there it skips, here it shoots, in one place tis white as snow, and another tis green as grass. Hereabout, it pitches into deep hollows with rumble, 
that, that rumble and quake the earth and there away it ripples and sings like a brook fashioning whirlpools and gullies in the old stone as if it was no harder than trodden clay the whole design of the river seems disconcerted that's that's cooper not only giving natty an inward life a sense of poetry and artfulness and, and a voice that's really quite impressive it's also he he could have just described this scene during daylight in his own voice, Cooper could have, but instead he, he, he gives us the after image in Natty's mind, and he, and he shows us uh, Natty instructing his, his companions whom he's leading through the forest to Lake George in how to think about and understand this environment. So it's that environment, of course, that the, the two opposing armies have to travel through in order to meet each other. So Cooper's great, I think, because of that historical sense of American origins and promise, but also about that because of his sensitivity to an elaborate engagement with the beautiful but difficult environment of North America. And we see that right there. I think in spades, it's really quite impressive. Well, that was wonderful. Professor Wayne Franklin, thank you so much for being with us today on The Learning Curve. What a, what a great learning experience, uh, certainly for me and for our listeners as well, I'm sure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. You take care. Stay safe. Yep. Bye. And Gerard, we could not close out the show without our tweet of the week. It would be absolute heresy. We can't do it. And, you know, we really like to feature this tweeter uh, because he is prolific and provocative and usually, in my opinion, pretty much spot on. This week, it's uh, Citizen Stewart yet again. Uh, and to what we were talking about with your story of the week at the top of the show, Gerard, he tweets, Mr. Biden, will you stand up for every child or just be another politician? I don't have anything else to say. I think he dropped the mic with that one. So, and don't miss next week when we're going to be speaking with Carl Bastani, the president of Sabas, Sabas, however you want to say it, he's going to tell us the right way, Educational Systems, an organization that um, if you know anything about uh, charter schools, <laughs> uh, you've probably heard of it, fascinating history fascinating organization. Um, some people love to love them. Some people love to hate them. We're going to learn a lot. So looking forward to that. And Gerard, until then, stay safe. And I look forward to chatting with you in seven short days. Look forward to it. Take care. <laughs>